Hey everyone, this is Caleb here from In the Mood for Real History. Now before you get started with this episode, if you haven't heard, I want to tell you about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain it to you. First off, being on a teacher's salary, I love that it is free. There's also creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. So make sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello and streaming to you live from one of the few places in Alabama with any common sense. This is In the Mood for Real History, where I'm on a mission to make history real again one beer at a time. I'm your host, Caleb Mood. So I want to start out by saying just how thankful I am for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that thumbs up and subscribe button below. I always appreciate any comments or feedback. So I know it has been a long time since I've been able to put out any episodes, but you know, life has gotten in the way and quarantine and all that fun stuff. So, But I'm so glad to be back. And so over the next few episodes, we're going to discuss how three policies, a federal job guarantee, baby bonds and reparations make up this thing that I've termed the three-legged stool of justice. And so these three policies together would establish a firm foundation for racial economic justice across the board in the United States. So by the end of these three episodes, I will explain how the case is being made by progressives, democratic socialists, and others who realize that neoliberalism has only led to the exploitation of the working class. The case being made here isn't a Democrat or Republican argument. While I know that the S-word will terrify conservatives, these three policies show that these transcend the political parties to raise up those who have been left behind. So this is bigger than Republican or Democrat. That case being made is that the current system of capitalism only serves to promote racial and economic inequality. Instead, the U.S. should adopt an economics rights frame that's administered in a race-conscious way. So essentially, an economic framework that eradicates barriers that preserve inequalities and exclusionary job market practices that hurt people of color. Our soon-to-be former president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, stated that people want to work for what they get. And you know, it must be 2020 for me to be agreeing with anyone with the last name of Trump But who would have known that we both are such proponents for a jobs guarantee? So a jobs guarantee is exactly that. If you want a job, then the government guarantees just that. So my first question for you is, when you think of a foundational piece of any society, what do you picture first? When you're growing up, why are we told to do well in school? To be able to get a great job and to struggle less than our parents did before us, right? Something similar like that. That American dream is being able to find a job with decent wages and one that brings you fulfillment, this sense of fulfillment, this pride in knowing that you have a job that helps you provide for your family. But unfortunately, it has long been clear that the private sector alone cannot achieve this goal. Neither can capitalist markets offer both protections against worker exploitation and opportunities for social mobility. These things require something called public policy. 
And any gains made on these fronts have been made due to two things overall, government policy and social movements demanding radical change. Even during periods of economic growth, wealth and income inequality will continue to widen. The only way to curtail runaway wealth hoarding is if the government creates rules that create shared prosperity. Now let me make you know a few things crystal clear. Because I know people will jump to say, he's pushing for me to support all them lazy people that don't want to work or some kind of shit like that. And I'm not saying that one group of people should shoulder the burden for everyone else. I'm actually calling for something exactly opposite of that. I'm saying that all who desire to work should be guaranteed the right to a decent wage and the right to live a dignified life. That is what true full employment would look like in this country. But Caleb, we're living in some of the greatest periods of economic gains. Well, you're, cre- you're correct in a certain sense. Over the last half century, our country has witnessed tremendous economic gains from increased productivity. But those gains have gone to the elite and upper middle class, while the working class wages have remained flat. These inequalities are especially pronounced for women, African Americans, and other people of color. Their education, employment, earnings, and wealth are more precarious. If this last year has taught us anything, is that it's that nearly all of us are one catastrophic or pandemic away from financial ruin. This desire for a secure, well-paying job is not some new idea. In fact, FDR is the most notable proponent for true full employment. Many of his New Deal programs reflected this belief in the necessity of full employment. You know, in fact, during his 1944 State of the Union address, he called for an expansion to the Bill of Rights to recognize economic rights as well. Roosevelt observed that, quote, needful men are not free men. Those who are hungry are out of a job, are the stuff of which dictators are made. FDR continued saying, quote, moreover, the real freedom to pursue happiness requires a second Bill of Rights where a new basis of security and prosperity can be had by all." So essentially, FDR believed full citizenship demanded more than just political rights that were laid out in the original Bill of Rights. He believed that it required economic rights, and most importantly, the right to a useful job. In FDR's vision for America, public policy would empower all people to live a dignified life and would shield vulnerable populations from predatory practices. These predatory practices involve a single-minded focus of profits over people. So how exactly did we get in this conversation, or in this, I guess, predicament, you may ask? So let's start by looking at the history of wage inequalities. In 1940, the typical black male earned less than 45% of the earnings of a white male. By 1980, black men earned a little of 70% of the average white men's wage. But by the dawn of the Reagan years, this progress ceased altogether. This halt in progress was explained by focusing on education and individual attitudes being the key to upward mobility. So essentially, the narrative started that if African Americans were more responsible, made better decisions, and focused on education, then they would continue to succeed the old pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then, you know, riddle me this, Batman. 
How do we explain the fact that unemployment rates for African Americans have remained roughly twice as high as the white rate, regardless of education? Moreover, wealth disparities persist with high levels of education too. Black head of households with a college degree have less wealth than white households, where the head of the house dropped out of high school. So how the hell do you explain that one? I'm, I'm, I'll, you know, I'll sit here and wait. And it's actually simple and will make Charlie Kirk and other conservatives heads explode. It's that race is an even stronger predictor of wealth than class itself. So for the slow Tommy Tubervilles that need me to speak very, very slowly, I'm going to respond. I'll repeat this for you, okay? Race is an even stronger predictor of wealth than class itself. And if you still don't believe me, but, you know, unlike former, soon-to-be soon former President Trump's unhinged conspiracy theories, I have these pesky things called facts. And I'll actually tell them to you. So, uh, you know, I actually have something to back up what I claim. According to the two, 2016 Survey of Consumer Finances, the typical black family has about $17,500 in wealth. In contrast, the typical white family has about $171,000 in wealth. That means that the average black family literally has 10% of the wealth of a white family. So where does this giant wealth gap come from? And it, to be honest, it's a holdover from slavery, where African Americans were literally assets for the white elites. So how can we expect there to be an equality in wealth when not even 200 years ago, black people were the fucking measurement of wealth? Please tell me, how can we have that you know, sense of equality. But, and I know I can hear Rand Paul and all of his libertarian friends saying, you know, Caleb, what about the free market? Laissez-faire, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, what is glaringly absent from this asinine line of thinking is how the supposedly free markets are molded by the elites to fit their own interest. Without the government intervention, the inequality will continue. And I can hear it now. Well, okay, Snowflake, how do you suggest we fix it? Well, Boomer, I'm so glad you had you asked. The remedy is a race-conscious economic bill of rights that looks beyond human behaviors. Instead, it looks to break down the barriers that preserve economic inequalities. How exactly do we break down those racialized economic barriers, you may ask? Well, three things. A federal job guarantee, baby bonds, and finally acknowledgement of our country's racist past through a system of reparations. For this episode, we're going to start off with the universal positives of a federal job guarantee. So today, economists associate full employment with a 4-6% unemployment rate. This measures, uh, this counts workers who do not have a job, those who have looked for a job, and those who are available to work. It does not count the millions who have stopped seeking employment or are seasonal workers. Even when the unemployment rate is low, there are still millions out of work because job seekers always outnumber the available open jobs. Historical unemployment data highlights the persistent trends of discriminatory labor market practices. Alleviating these hardships with a true full employment economy is not only a proven solution, but also not a new idea. Along with FDR's Economic Bill of Rights, full employment was a cornerstone of the 1963 March on Washington. Other countries such as India, Argentina, and many others have employed job guarantee programs that have been met with much success. 
India's full employment program has resulted in 600 million workers that are eligible for employment and have helped to alleviate poverty by increasing low-income households' earnings by up to 13%. Recent pushes by the labor market has helped the fight for 15 minimum wage gain momentum. It has already been implemented in cities and states across the country. Take Florida, for instance. During the latest election, 60% of Florida's workers overwhelmingly voted to adopt a $15 minimum wage. This happened while the state also went to Trump. So we see that this policy goes across party lines, but it's not nearly bold enough. It leaves many workers and disproportionately brown and black workers unemployed. So it does not address the volatility of work hours and lack of job, of job security. A job guarantee, on the other hand, would act as a de facto wage floor in the labor market. So this would greatly increase the decision-making power of workers. With the federal job guarantee in place, private employers would also have the ability to offer jobs at least as good as those offered by the government in order to attract employees. Essentially, a federal job guarantee offers an alternative to jobs that offer low pay, few benefits, and poor working conditions. This would provide a buffer against the economic transitions due to automation and the need to transition away from fossil fuels. When determining which projects would be included in the full employment program, priority should be given to, the, to those that aid distressed communities. Consistent with the Green New Deal, jobs would be designed to transform our nation into a green and sustainable economy through a substantial public investment. So renowned economist and MMTer Dr. Pavlina Cherneva believes that the federal job guarantee projects can be managed at the local level to ease the fear of conservatives and to be split up into three categories. The first category is the care for the environment. This includes tree planting, fire and other disaster prevention, and home weatherization. Care for the community is the second one. This involves restoration of public spaces and of neighborhood revitalization. And the third is the last, and third and last is the care for people. This involves elder care, after school programs, and health awareness. Just like the work programs of FDR's New Deal, a federal job guarantee would not only provide jobs to anyone who desires it, but it would also provide an increase of goods and services that benefits all people. Overall, more than, and honestly, more than anything, a federal job guarantee is flexible because it transforms our economy away from an aim towards profit, but instead it transforms it to one of overall social benefit. So why should a single mother work for 40 hours a week to put her child in childcare when she could be paid to stay home and do it herself? The private sector will never create that because it, there's not a profit to be had. So today, we live in the wealthiest nation on earth. We should be enjoying the highest standard of living, but instead our youth is weighed down with student debt, they're scared about a lack of job prospects, and they're wondering if we will even have a habitable planet to live on. This is, the, this is completely unacceptable. And to all neoliberals who are reaping the rewards of being in power and demonizing those of us who dare to want more than of a just society, I want to end on this. It is long past time to quit focusing on profit and rather start living up to the shining city on a hill mantra that we claim to be. 
We claim to be our brother's keepers regardless of whether it will directly benefit you. So this is going to conclude our first episode on the Three-Legged Stool of Justice. Make sure to tune into our next episode where we, where we will cover the second installment in this series on racial and economic justice by discussing baby bonds. So finally, I want to thank you all for your support. If you enjoyed this episode and want to let me know how I'm doing, feel free to like and subscribe to my channel, In the Mood for Real History, on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or anywhere else that you can think of that I haven't mentioned. Also, make sure to leave me a review letting me know any comments or feedback. Even if you think I'm some crazy socialist, I want to hear why. I'll prove you wrong, but hey, I want to hear what you think. So until the next episode, this is Caleb Mood reminding you that the most revolutionary act that one can engage in is to simply tell the truth. Thank y'all, and have a great week.